The Video Insiders is the show that makes sense of all that is happening in the world of online video, as seen through the eyes of a second-generation Kodak nerd and a marketing guy who knows what iframes and macro blocks are. And here are your hosts, Mark Donegan and Dror Gill. Well, welcome back to the Video Insiders. Uh, I am Mark Donegan, and I am here with my co-host, Dror Gill. Dror, are you ready to do this? I'm as ready as I'll ever be. As ready as you'll ever be. You know, we are creeping forward to 100 episodes. Yeah, episode 84 today. It's amazing. Yeah, well, we have another uh, video insider with us. Today, Paul Markham is joining us on the podcast. And first of all, Paul, welcome to the Video Insiders. Well, it's great to be here. And, um, you know, thank you very much for inviting me. Absolutely. Well, uh, you know the show, you know the format. We just love to talk, uh, you know, with folks in the industry who are doing exciting things, uh, have stories to tell. And uh, you have been uh, working in the broadcast industry for what, like 25 years? Yeah, something like that. I mean, I, I um, e- even even before I had a formal job, I was actually uh, in student radio doing some interesting things as well. So, you know, it could be pushing 30 years if you count that. But I, I started off working in, in radio, in the radio industry in the UK um, in, in the late 90s, um, which was, you know, just a very different era of broadcasting and of technology. Amazing. Amazing. Now, uh, why don't you give us a preview? Walk us through uh, how you got to what you're doing now and, you know, what you're really excited about. And so it's sort of, of, of course, being a student in the 90s, when I when I when I got to my university, I, I think when I discovered this thing called the Internet. Have, have you heard of that? Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes. Boy, my 33.6 kill a bit, right? Bod modem. I, I was so excited when I got that. <laughs> I, I started on a Unix terminal. So, you know, maybe that set the scene for what came later. It was just about when I was sort of finishing up my studies. And I, I studied audio technology. And it was just about when I was finishing up my studies that people were, were seriously starting to do audio over the internet and, and and obviously now we just think well of course that happened we're doing it right now right but back then it was it was a pretty special idea because up until that point the the internet had been sort of words and pictures and even before that it was just words um so uh, I, I guess it was the right time for me if you like to, to to start doing this stuff and when i got a job in the radio industry here in london one of the first things i was tasked with was was sort of trying to understand how we could use the the internet and and internet related technologies to do interesting things with with radio and and that wasn't really necessarily with creatively with radio that was really in terms of how do we improve our reduce costs basically on our supply chain and uh, how, how do we do things in a in a in a more um, efficient way by by making use of this new network and and of course um, in terms of data requirement audio was was way ahead of video in in that sense because really back in the 90s we were talking about okay well maybe we could use the internet for for distributing audio clips and things like that that we could then use on stations and of course at the same time um, the UK was was really starting to take the um the launch of DAB very seriously so DAB as a as a as a digital radio platform had been around for a few years in a very sort of high end form 
where you could spend a couple of thousand pounds or dollars and, and get a you know, get a, a radio receiver but but it was obviously a very niche market um and and it was only in the sort of right at the end of the 90s that the the, the radio industry in the uk kind of trailblazed this idea of, of trying to subsidize uh, receivers and getting it to be a mass market proposition which obviously is what we have today as, as probably the dominant platform particularly in cars in the uk and, and across most of europe and, and and other other places as well but back in the early days obviously we were launching a new radio platform and and you know no one was listening to it i think let's be honest about it no one no one listens to a new platform when you launch it you have to kind of launch it with faith and, and one of the um you know one of the things the the internet brought to brought to bear on this was okay so how could we do a bunch of stuff really cheaply to make some radio stations that quite honestly very few people are going to listen to but need to be there in order to to promote and, and start to build this platform we did various things experimenting with you know ftp and wav files and uh, trying to push things around the internet to to get them into places so that they could go on air i guess i started off by going oh well yes ftp everyone's using ftp uh, but i i to this day i loathe ftp because it's so unreliable um and and i i, I really learned the hard way trying to push audio files around the the, the internet in in about the year 2000 that the ftp really wasn't wasn't the way to push around large files it's actually amazing that people still still doing it <laughs> people are still using ftp for this even with all its flaws um and and it does have many i mean we 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 actually had problems where you know we would be pushing these audio files to go on the air on one of these these radio stations and only half of the file would arrive because no you know there was no one else in the chain because it was such a, a low cost thing so you know this is what we learned about ftp getting deep down and and uh, you know dirty with hex editors with what the the, the 90s equivalent of wireshark trying to understand exactly what was going wrong I, I guess the most important thing i i kind of learned from that that era and, and you know we kind of pioneered this this sort of software as a service it wasn't called that we that that term did didn't exist it wasn't a it wasn't a thing but we were building these these platforms and actually we realized that we, we were a services company in the uk radio industry selling to, to uk radio stations which it was quite a fairly fragmented in industry at that point and 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 what we realized was that all of these different stations operating with not much money it's particularly for their for their new dab services were trying to trying to do the same stuff. And, and obviously they'd have some graduate or, or some guy who, who could write a bit of Visual Basic or something and they were trying to knock together bits of software. And we quickly realised that as a services company, if we built one of these sort of platforms that actually did it all for everyone, we could do a better job of it and, and, and obviously make it a, a great proposition for these stations. We just go to them and say, well, stop trying to do that. We know it's unreliable. We know it's difficult to, you know, software is easy to write, but hard to write well, I think is, is always a good phrase. We can look after this for you, we can manage it, and we're selling it to lots of people, so it's obviously cheaper. We've got an economy of scale. And that's, that's for us, that's really how software as a service kind of was born. And we managed to plug into um, some various uh, private um, networks across the UK, so IP networks, which we could then use to connect to transmitter towers and connect to various uh, different stations. And that was, that was also part of the package. So we could, we could, but we could literally give these stations a web portal to go and distribute their content and, and also update things like the, uh, the scrolling text on their DAB service. So you were also a CDN, right? Because you were providing these services based on networks that you had access to. Again, it wasn't called, it wasn't called that. I mean, the idea of a CDN didn't exist. But, but, but I guess you could say in, in some ways it was a, it was a CDN. Yeah, I, I think so. 
a CMS as well in some ways. And, and, and I think the most important thing was that our customers weren't buying this because they, they'd read about how cool software as a service was as a concept. They were buying it because it was a great proposition and it was something that really really solved a problem for them at a, at a cost that made it a, a what we might call a no-brainer i mean it was it was you know it was a great proposition to go and sell something that you know that, that, that actually your customer really wanted so how'd you make the jump to video um that's an interesting one isn't it i, I think um in, in the mid-2000s i i decided to uh, you know I, I decided to take a break and go on a little round the world trip and I, I worked in australia on on dab for a bit as well i, I did various bits of work with them and then um, when I got back to the UK, I, I actually applied for a few jobs in radio and, and I ended up getting picked up by um, what was at the time a new company called Red Bee Media, who uh, had recently been separated from the BBC. And um, I hadn't even really sort of considered the relevance of my skills to the video chain. And, and obviously they brought me in and said, by the way, all of this stuff that you've done before, it's pretty cool. And we want to do some of that with video. And ultimately, I was evolved in the um, first couple of iterations of what was the BBC's iPlayer, which is the BBC's video on demand service. We launched that, I think, on Christmas Day 2007, notoriously because everyone at the time, I remember joking about well, what a ridiculous day to launch a technical product. That was the pressure. You know, you haven't got a big team in, in the, you know, available on that day to fix it if it doesn't work. Um, but it, I mean, for its time, it was a groundbreaking um, platform. Well, it was very, very groundbreaking. I mean, you know, for those of us uh, here in the U.S., I mean, 2007, there wasn't a product like that. It was really innovative. Absolutely. And, and people loved it. In retrospect, maybe it was a slightly obvious thing to do. But I, I think at the time, I remember a lot of cynicism about, um, you know, a lot of people would say, well, why, why would you want to watch TV on your computer? And of course, that wasn't really the point. The point was really to get the, um, the back end capability to deliver video on demand. And, and obviously a PC was the, was the initial outlet with which you could achieve that. So initially, iPlayer only worked in the browser on a PC? or I think the first, very first launch was, was just a browser on a PC, but um, very quickly, so within a matter of months, it was available on, on cable networks, uh, for example. It was gaming consoles, cable set-top boxes, things that were already in the marketplace. So I, I remember there was, you know, Xboxes, Wiis, all of those kinds of things were, were targets early on. Yeah, you know, the idea of a, of a streaming stick or, or anything like that was, was obviously a fair way off at that point. Yeah, that, that didn't exist then. But it was about getting it onto devices that people already had hooked up to their TV, which is an important step. And with that, it became a great hit. I think a lot of people liked it. Yeah, and that's, really, that's, that's really interesting. So you started with radio, applying software techniques and moving to IP in the radio space and then going uh, to video. And, you know, before the iPlayer, before streaming started on the internet, you know, broadcast was all about boxes and towers and cables and, and all that. And now when you started with, with the iPlayer and streaming, it's going to be, you know, bits and networks and manipulating that is usually not with boxes. You need software. So when does this paradigm shift happen of, of the industry switching from boxes to software? Or is it still happening today? I, I think it's still happening. Um, I mean, a lot of the early stuff we did with iPlayer was very, you know, it was very separated from the broadcast work chain. So it was, we would have, um, you know, believe it or not, content at that point was still delivered on tape. 
So we, we would have tapes that would be ingested twice. One, one would be ingested into a playout system um, and then the other one would be ingested into another system for, for, for iPlayer. And, and the tape would go on a trolley between one and another. And then, and then, of course, there was the live content which had to be captured and quite often it was captured from, from a satellite feed. Um, if, if it wasn't available in the in the local control centre, it had to be taken off a satellite feed. And then, you know, you'd have to be captured, then it'd have to be trimmed because, of course, they would be captured with handles to make sure they got the whole thing. Um, and, and then you'd have to process it. So I mentioned all of those different platforms earlier, the Wii and the, the Xbox and the cable box. These platforms very quickly multiplied because we wanted to get it into as many people's uh, homes and onto as many TVs as we could. But every one of those platforms required a different encoding um, standard, a different bitrate, a different everything. So you, you, you then suddenly, not only are you having to record a um, you know, broadcast quality video, potentially, that, that could be, you know, if it was a live sports program, it could be some hours long. And then, then you have to pass it through lots of different tr different transcoders at the same time. And then you have to ship it off to the, you know, one of the early CDNs that, that would then distribute it to wherever it was going, or you'd ship it off to the cable provider, or you'd ship it off to wherever. And so, actually, it, and if you think about that, the BBC had, depending on how you count them, because obviously you have children's channels at part-time and evening channels, but, you know, maybe six to eight channels churning out content um so you're talking about hundreds of programs a day that have to go through this process one way or another and there's a capacity constraint there and there's there's logistics there's you know at the time we had problems with disk io actually the logistics of, of behind the scenes were quite significant technically to deliver that at that time uh, we didn't have you know i mean i think cloud existed in i think aws was launched by then but it wasn't something that you would do anything like this on of course yeah but now bbc is is a pioneer in using the cloud for almost you know anything they can yeah i i think um you know when when that iteration of iplayer drew to a close i think the replacement was a you know was a cloud-based uh version for doing all of that because of course when you're doing that level of transcode and, and processing on that scale you know the cloud is, is is made for it i mean that that's that's perfect for the cloud because you know the the, the workloads are peaky obviously there's peak time programs there's there's sporting events that happen that are going to increase the throughput you need and and you know it's a classic cloud um economic argument of okay well if you do if you're going to do this with your own kit you're going to have to buy for peak capacity in order to meet your um, throughput whereas if you do it in the cloud well you know it, this year we've got the football or soccer world cup happening on on you know at christmas time so we've got you know a double whammy of of huge amounts of content that are going to be have to be processed i mean yeah I, I suppose if we were trying to do that on prem back then we would be talking about going and buying new capacity just to meet that that level of demand and not just having to buy it of course but having to order it in advance set aside the time and effort to install it and to test it and to set it all up and and, and all of that that you today you you would you would just do with a you know with a cloud provider in a matter of minutes mm -hmm. so you talked about uh, the separation between the internet streaming and the broadcast work in the early days and going through these different processing chains but today do you see the cloud entering in a major way into the traditional broadcast uh, workflow where, where you transmit the actual channels that go out uh, over the air and satellite and cable? So I, I, I think the cloud today has a very um, significant presence in the um, file-based workflows that, that we're using. It certainly has, in the last two to three years, really 
started to um, take over that that sort of non-linear, if you like, side of the the processing chain for traditional broadcast. And obviously, for, for for a long time, back you know, for ten years or more, since we we went past that initial iteration, all of those streaming platforms, of course, they've been software and cloud. And and I think for a little while now, for a few years, there's been a a sort of delineation between the traditional broadcast team if you like or broadcast engineering and the, the, the you know those those people who who might even sit in a different building who do that sort of streaming stuff and i think we're starting to see that line become a little bit more blurred um i, I think media management um is is an area where we've we've definitely seen a big move to cloud in the last uh, two to three years um i i've i've heard of several broadcasters who have you know basically said we've abandoned our our old media management system and we've moved to a cloud-based one and it you know it, it's it, it's been quicker better faster cheaper whatever you know I, I think that's that's been a great success for the for the uh for the cloud providers but for, in terms of live content I, I think we're we're still wrestling with how that works how much of the the shift, Paul? It's interesting that you said, you know, maybe over the last couple of years, you've seen these broadcasters moving. I'll use the word wholesale, meaning like, you know, they're a hundred percent or near hundred percent in the cloud. How much of that is just they reached the the comfort? You know, they got to the stage where they finally just felt comfortable. And then how much of it was just they literally, you know, let's just, I'm picking a date. Five years ago, they didn't have everything they needed, you know. And so maybe it wasn't possible or it would have been actually harder in the cloud. I guess what I'm trying to understand is, you know, there's a lot of legacy in broadcast that we're aware of. There's always a reason why it's there. So, you know, for those of us that want to do new, exciting, innovative things, it's easy to look at the old and say, you know, get rid of that and, you know, do it with this. But there's a reason why it's there. So this shift to the cloud, is it because now it's actually possible or is it just comfort, you know, that finally people are comfortable? I think it's a bit of both. Um, and, and they're interrelated as well. I, I, I think whilst... Things have been possible, yeah. You know, particularly in terms of file-based workflows. I think things have been possible for quite a while, but actually there was quite a lot of work involved. And by work, I mean a lot of sort of intensive software development, which broadcasters might have had teams doing that, but they were busy working on the, you know, on the user experience for their streaming platform, quite rightly, and not not tinkering around with back-end workflows. And I think what has happened is is that, you know, we've seen major vendors and cloud providers in the last, uh, particularly in the last couple of years, come forward with actually much more sophisticated and um, you know, rounded platforms that actually solve broadcasters' problems directly. And so no longer is the proposition to a, to a broadcaster, oh, well, we, we offer you some infrastructure as a service and you can come along and build your own code. It's more, here is a ready-made, ready-configurable, cloud-based, auto-scaling, all-singing, all-dancing thing that, that does what you need it to. And, and that sort of has that comfort level as well as sort of being, as you know, I, I use the phrase again. I'm not, sure, I'm not sure I like the phrase, but I'll use it again. It's a no-brainer for, for them to suddenly go, well... Um, actually, this just makes perfect sense. When, particularly when your your on-prem hardware you know comes end of life, and you're looking at how to replace it, and you know maybe times are a bit tight, and you don't you know you don't want to spend all your money on a new pile of servers. You you go and look at what um, you know what AWS or, or Microsoft are offering in the in the cloud, and you say, well, actually, that that does the job. 
Um, so why would I why would I go through all of that? Not just procuring the kit, but but actually all of the effort to go and build it and install it and set it all up and test it and maintain it and update it and and all of all of that that stuff that you have to do. So I, I think it's a bit of both. And I think, but I, I do think the user experience and, and and you know maybe as I said right back at the beginning with those radio products, the, the customer proposition tied in with that user experience is is quite paramount. It's quite important. Um, to actually have a successful product and a successful migration. People need their problems solved in, in very simple terms, don't they? Um, I, I think broadcasters are, you know, again, rightly reluctant to commit to blue sky software development based stuff to, to try and recreate traditional workflows. But when it's been done for them and, and the, the benefits are proven, well, you know, of course they're going to, of course they're going to dive in. When we did the, the preparation for this podcast, you came up with a term, uh, with a phrase that uh, I found really fascinating, and you called it mutual trivialization. <laughs> It's a little bit of a, of a tongue twister. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Meaning that the software people, they tend to think that the video bit is easy, and the broadcast folks, they think the software bit is easy, and <laughs> none of them are right. <laughs> exactly. And then I think you've always got a third group there, haven't you? You've got the, the IT infrastructure folk who, 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 who think the rest of it is easy. Uh, I mean, <laughs> another way of putting it is it's you know, someone else's job is always easier than yours syndrome, isn't it? Because, because you understand your job and you understand what the difficult bits are. Um, but somebody else who, who just does whatever. And that, just software, yeah. You know, delivering good software cost-effectively and, and in a timely fashion is hard, right? It's, it's not an easy thing to do. There's, there's a huge industry being built and there's you know, all of these disciplines about how you do it, but it, it doesn't suddenly make it easy or a solved problem. Um, and, and equally, how long has broadcasting been going as a discipline? It's probably 100 years or so. I think the BBC is celebrating 100 years uh, anniversary this week. So, you know, we've had 100 years of, of learning about how to do broadcast engineering. And there's this other group of people that have had maybe 50 years learning how to do software. And uh, we've all got to learn from each other because actually there's, there's really important things about both disciplines that we have to take forward and, and bring together. But uh, ultimately, it comes back to inclusivity. We've got to, be in, we've got to, we've got to understand the views uh, that everyone's got something to bring to the table here, um, that there is something we can learn from, from other disciplines. You mentioned inclusive and, uh, and diversity. I think that's one uh, issue that we wanted uh, uh, to discuss. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, I, I, I've, I've worked in many uh, organizations over the years. And one of the problems that I do see is, is a lot of people do see sort of diversity and inclusion as a kind of a, a sort of trendy tick box. You know, it's something we do because it's virtuous. Well, you know what? It is virtuous. I'm not going to take away from that. But it's also something we do because it actually helps us make better products. Uh, and, and that's a reality that by being inclusive and by by listening to what different groups of people have to say particularly if we're making products as you tend to with software you tend to make products or at least want to make products that are saleable the world over or usable the world over right they, they have to be universal that's 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 part of their value right and, and you're never going to do that if, if you're not embracing all of the different potential groups of people who might be using your product again it's one of those things that sounds obvious when you say it but i i've seen with my own eyes that that actually bringing diversity and, and being open to that inclusion within an organization really does enhance the value of what you produce in in technology i i speak really obviously mainly from experience in the uk but the you know the broadcast uh, engineering industry or, or discipline in the uk has a particular problem with 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 a lack of diversity and and we need to address that by trying to make 
broadcasting cool again in its better way. I mean, you know, I, I go and work with streaming teams or or with uh, front end teams, and you do see a lot more diversity in in, in the sort of software industry um, than you do in in the traditional broadcast uh, industry. And that's not you know that's not the fault of anyone who's obviously very good at their jobs and working in broadcast. It's but it's something that we do need to 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 try and address through inclusivity. And you know, again, it's part of being open to the to the software discipline of you know accepting different views and accepting uh you know being willing to 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 listen to you know things outside your immediate industry bubble and i think you know in in broadcast engineering particularly we've we found ourselves in in quite a bubble from a hundred years worth of development because we've we've sort of been a been our own thing for a very long time and and that's that's totally understandable but we are now part of something that's bigger than that and that sort of plays into all of the things we talked about and it's all the part of the fact that we've got to try and accept that the world is changing and open our minds to learning from other industries other people other cultures it's what we have to do in order to 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 get somewhere so this gets talked about a lot you know the diversity issue but there's something that comes to mind, and I'd love to get your your thoughts. Isn't there an element in broadcast that we need to be willing to take a little bit more risk? And here's where my question is. I have observed many, many times, unfortunately, <laughs> where you present a new you know, technology approach, architecture, fill in the blank to somebody who is in, let's just say in the broadcast ecosystem. Okay. doesn't matter if they're a telco, a cable company, uh, you know, traditional media company, whatever. And everybody's excited about it because it's new, it's innovative, right? And then it never makes it to market because somebody says, oh, but our five nines will be at risk. Now, don't get me wrong. I really do get the fact that, you know, in the U.S., it's a little bit of a joke, but I think it's unfortunately a little bit true. You know, people, quote unquote, don't like their, you know, fill in the blank, their cable company, their whatever, because, you know, what happens? Cable always goes out right in the middle of the game, you know? (laughs) And so this isn't, you know, this isn't a streaming, you know, OTT guy, you know, meaning me saying, what are you talking about? You know, it's acceptable if every once in a while it buffers. And, you know, so I get, the value proposition that when I turn on my TV and I'm paying for that service that, you know, that it works, that it's, that it's always there, that's trusted, it's reliable. So I get that, but there's an element of risk that in order to push forward and in order to innovate and in order to establish a new way to do things, right? Everything can't be, well, if it's less than five nines, we will never touch it or else guess what? We're going to be stuck on MPEG two and, you know, and Quam and Quam channels, you know, I mean, and guess what? Still we're stuck on MPEG two and Quam channels, you know? So I, I would say, first of all, uh, of course you're right that we have to, we have to find a way to move forward. One of the things that, and, and again, I, I speak from a British perspective, but one of the things that we, we, I think are guilty of in, in our industry is, is resting on our laurels a little bit when it comes to reliability. And, and I will cite two incidents, two major incidents that happened in the UK last year with broadcast infrastructure. Um, the first one was um, a data centre outage, which was a, a fire suppressant release in a building in, in White City, uh, operated by Red Bee. And uh, the other one was a, was a transmitter mast fire up in uh, the north of England. 
I don't want to go into the, the minutiae of these incidents, but what they really both kind of highlighted was, you know, all of the, you know, 100 years, if you like, of culture and, and process and, and, and expertise that we've built up in broadcasting did not prevent either of those incidents from happening. So when we talk about five nines, we, we need to be careful about assuming that just because we've got traditional infrastructure that delivers on that promise it's always going to be able to deliver on that promise. So that's the, that's the first point I'd make on what you said. And the other thing I'd say is, you, you ever heard of the book by uh, Clay, Clay Christensen called The Innovator's Dilemma? Yeah, um, yes. Yeah, so I he, have it on my bookshelf right yeah. here. <laughs> have, you, have you read it? <laughs> yes, yes, I have. He put it there after he read it. <laughs> that's a, <laughs> that's, a, that's a, that valid question, but yes, I have. Valid, Twice, definitely. actually. <laughs> I think it's important that we, we, do, we do understand where we, are, where we are in the market. So, so yeah, your, your traditional public broadcast service is, is obviously right at the top of the market in terms of reliability. But ultimately, I think what you have to recognize is that there is a bottom of the market. And, and, and actually, at the bottom of the market, you don't need five nines. You're probably happy with two or three nines or, or maybe you know, even less than that. And ultimately, that's, that's where your innovation comes from isn't it you you don't put your crown jewels public tv channel in through your experimental chain you, you're gonna you're gonna choose something that's that you can take more risks with quite honestly and and, and that's fine and we should we should embrace that i mean that that's that's absolutely what those things are for so last week netflix announced more details about their ad supported package and uh different parts of the world i, I i'm not sure if it's seven dollars 6.99 everywhere but here here's an interesting thing is that they're going to limit the resolution to 720p now those of us who are in the industry and who appreciate, you know, uh, probably have the reaction like, oh, well, geez, you know, even if I want to save money, there's no way I'm watching 720p. But here's something that I think the industry is, is it may be shocked by. And of course, time will tell. Right. So but but I just want to make this point because I've had the discussion with more than a few folks in the industry about it. And people are lining up kind of with this point of view. And it is that we are probably going to be shocked at how the consumer feels a 720p is perfectly adequate. Look, I've got a 100-inch screen behind me. I've got a 4K projector. I'm going to notice 720p. But I, I, at the same time, I, I know that my 80-year-old mother who's watching on a, a traditional TV that's probably, you know, what, 20 inches or something, she, she's not going to notice the difference. I think we've got to recognize that there is a, potentially the vast majority of people aren't aren't that bothered as long as it's there as long as it works i mean it does depend on what device you've got i think you know and, and as we move more towards you know there's more mobile viewing more tablet viewing i think again that plays to you don't you don't need 4k to watch on an ipad do you even with a beautiful retina you know iphone or ipad i, I mean with a, with a high quality 720p encode it looks pretty darn good you know <laughs> it really does I want to go back uh, for a minute to, to what Mar Mark said about, you know, the five nines on one hand and all the software stacks or new innovation on the other hand and, and how you introduce them into the, um, um, into the workflow, into production. In software, we have this uh, methodology called agile development that you iterate and you improve uh, with each small uh, iteration. You, you release a new uh, version and you improve it gradually and, and constantly. And that's how the whole web works and the cloud services work when you access something and then tomorrow you access the same site and suddenly you have new functionality, etc. It's just this iterative process. 
Uh, is that uh, relevant at all to, to the video space or the broadcast space? How, how can it uh, connect to what that industry is looking for? I think it's immensely relevant. Yeah, by, by the way, 20 years ago when I was doing that stuff in radio, we, again, that was before the Agile Manifesto, before Agile was, was kind of coined, but we, we kind of did that. We, it wasn't very structured, though. We kind of just did it by winging it, and if it went wrong... But I think that's the thing. We were such a small team. If it went wrong on a, you know, at four o'clock on a Sunday morning, your phone would ring, so you'd make sure that it wasn't going to go wrong. Yeah. I think Agile is hugely relevant because... To me, Agile is all about managing scope. And, and scope is, as we know, the huge problem in, in any kind of project uh, in terms of you know, cost and, and timescale. And, and by managing scope sort of dynamically, we can respond to what's going on. And, and I think when you're developing software in particular, but also complex technology projects that are more than just software, there are two key things that are going on. First of all, your, your customer or your end user's um, expectations and, and requirements change they evolve that that's that's a fact we can we can complain about it and I, I've, I've heard plenty of people who do but it's just a reality we have to we have to live with and then I, I think the other thing is that the things that we embark upon are often so complex that we don't really fully understand the nature of the problem or, or the detail of the problem we're getting into until we really start to try and implement it and this is true of a lot of software projects that you start to to get into the nitty-gritty of implementing your solution and you realize that actually it's not quite you didn't understand the problem quite as well as you think. Um, there's, a, there's a guy called Ward Cunningham, by the way, who, who is um, one of the um, authors of the co-authors of the Agile Manifesto, who also invented the term technical debt, if you've heard of that. And he, he does try to explain, I think it was a few years ago, he kind of popped up and explained this, this about technical debt, which is that people tend to assume that technical debt is a result of corner cutting or, or, or some sort of, you know, you know management desire to cut corners or, or, or do things faster than they should be done and and that, that's true that is a cause or can be a cause of technical debt i think though what, what he wanted to point out though was that the much bigger cause of technical debt is the fact that when you embark upon these projects you don't necessarily understand the full extent of the problem um and so when you get to the end of it if you're doing it as a traditional waterfall project you're going to have intrinsic technical debt from the fact that by the time you get to the end of the the, the solution that you've implemented you realize that you didn't fully understand the problem that you were trying to solve in the first place and and so by adopting agile what you're doing is you're you're shrinking that time scale so you're saying here's a bit of scope that we're going to implement in a you know whatever your length is but two three four weeks whatever you whatever you choose and at the end of that we're going to test it and make sure it does what it should do and at that point we'll understand if we didn't understand the problem and we can you know if there's if there's technical debt involved we'll we'll correct them in the next cycle yeah, correcting technical debt very quickly is much easier, isn't it? Because ultimately, you're, it's fresh in everyone's mind. They don't have to go back and, and revisit old things that they did months ago. Um, suddenly, you know, you can refactor that in the next sprint, if we're calling them that. I, I think we've got to be careful about overusing words. But, you know, in the next iteration, you, you correct that technical debt um, and you're on top of the scope. And, and by the way, you know, your customer said that they wanted this thing and, and it was more important than that thing. So you, you, you shuffle around the scope every every time you you embark upon the sprint and and ultimately what you end up with is is delivering more value faster by by focusing on the work that actually needs to be done rather than what you thought needed to be done at the outset so you, you're you're effectively prioritizing on in a, in a dynamic way and making sure that you're you're constantly re-evaluating and, and doing the things that are most important to do you know it's not an easy thing i don't think to govern a um an agile project well You've got to be totally ruthless on scope. 
every time you do your sprint plan, you've got to be able to say, no, we don't, we're not doing that, we're doing this. And you've got, to, you've got to know how much you can do and how much you can deliver. And prevent the feature creep. And absolutely, you're going to meet that sprint deployment date. And if you have to take things out of scope because they're not ready, then that's what you have to do. But the most important thing is you're, you're keeping the cycle going. And, you know, we, we think of Agile as being a software methodology, but, you know, and, and maybe, you know, maybe Scrum is very software focused, but then you, you start to look at things like Lean and, and Kanban and, and, and you start to see them being used on infrastructure projects, on, on civil engineering projects. So I guess, you know, none of us in, in broadcasting have got an excuse to sort of say, well, we're, we're special. When you see people building rail lines and, and you know, freeways and, and all the rest of it, using lean Kanban as, as, their, as their methodology and managing scope in that dynamic way, then you know that actually that's the way to get things done. Um, and that's the way to make sure that you're, you're delivering the right scope and, and constantly being, as I say, being, being ruthless on, on making sure that you're not doing things that you don't really need or that, or that are less important than the things. That you, it's all about relative importance, isn't it? Um, so I, I think it's hugely important and it's something that we need, we all need to understand and in, embrace a lot more, um, I think, agile methodologies in general. And I, and I think Scrum is probably the best known of them. Um, but, um, you know, Lean Kanban is, is, is also a useful one. And, and just generally the principles of understanding what, why, why you would do agile and, and how those things help you, because ultimately the, they're all solutions to problems. Yeah, that, that makes uh, a lot of sense. Uh, you know, one topic I want to touch on, because we uh, interviewed um, Dom Robinson about the greening uh, of streaming. Oh, yeah, the greening of streaming. Yeah, I've, I've heard of them. Yeah. And we also had others that uh, talked about the importance of uh, reducing the footprint or the consumption. Because, you know, we started this interview where you uh, described all the different uh, destinations for the video of iPlayer and how you needed to encode it again and again and again. And today, of course, you have all these different formats and phones and set-up boxes and TVs, and you need to encode it again, and you have a lot of uh, different formats. And some companies even do uh, trial encoding and various iterations to get the best quality possible, etc. And on the other hand, you know, we're thinking, how much energy does this uh, consume? Uh, is anybody taking into account... Uh, not only the, the end result and not only the fact, you know, that electricity and compute and all of that is available, but do we really want to turn that server on and, and use it? Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think for a number of reasons, the current ecosystem in terms of, you know, smart TV devices, um, you know, streaming sticks and all of those things, that can't be sustained long term, can it? The sheer diversity of end devices and end formats. And, and obviously that goes for the video formats, but it's even worse even for when you talk about the different um, different applications that we, you know, every broadcaster has to make, you know, a, a huge number of end device applications to, to deploy onto all of these different consumer devices. It's something that we've lived with for a while, but ultimately I, I think we're going to have to, as an industry, figure out how we how we improve upon that. And and that that absolutely is, you know, the green credentials of not doing all of those transcodes is important to that. I think also the, you know, the skill shortage plays into that, doesn't it? Because if every broadcaster has to have a huge team of developers just to keep all of their apps up to date for all of the different models of smart TV that they're serving, then how's that sustainable? That's a huge amount of cost and, and ultimately energy that's going out from all these developers doing all this coding, all the, all the rest of it. So there is, I, I think there's a, a long road to travel um, to try and uh, you know, do something about all of that. Um, I, I don't know what 
the easy answer is, but I think you know we need more cooperation. I think in 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 terms of standards and and in terms of um, manufacturers and, and try and f- figure some of this stuff out. And I think everybody wants to. I think there's 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 will to. I think it's just a lot of coordination because it's such a, a diverse marketplace. Do you think the answer, Paul, is some sort of a technical solution? And I think back to the promise of HTML5 nearly 10 years ago now, and there was this whole notion that SDKs are going to go away because everything's going to happen in the browser. Well, obviously, that's not the case because, you know, you have to look at the hardware player, you know, the codecs supported, and, you know, there's a lot of complexities there. Um, but there is a case being made for uh, moving from a native app um, where everything is custom bespoke built for that particular device to the browser. I can do amazing things just inside the browser. So is there a technical solution that could help get us there, i.e. reducing the number of SDKs that we have to maintain? Or is there even a business solution where services are going to have to get a bit ruthless in deprecating and saying, you know, that old Roku from literally 2007, we're no longer going to support that box. So what are you hearing and seeing and sensing and where do you think it's going to go? I think, um, wasn't it two or three weeks ago that Google uh, quietly, I think was the phrase used, quietly added HEVC support to to Chrome. And I was thinking exactly of that announcement (laughs) when I talked about, you know, Yeah, yeah. yeah. So maybe you know maybe that's part of the answer. There is this disparity, and and this is part of the um, you know when we talked about a hundred years of broadcasting and fifty years of, of computing, if you like, you know there is the pace of change disparity, isn't there? And part of the way that that's um, showing itself, let's say, is this expectation of device longevity because ultimately i mean i worked in the radio industry where you know it was considered perfectly normal to have 30 40 year old radio sets in everyday use right and this you know obviously back in the 90s um and, and i'm sure some people still have got devices of that age it's still in use i think tv has always been you know what, what's the expected lifespan of a tv 10 to 20 years maybe or is it that we need to have a a better way of being able to keep devices up to date. I don't know what the answer is, but I do think it's a, it's definitely a problem. I mean, when you're talking about people's 15, 20-year-old smart, the, the first-generation smart TVs losing support for, for major apps, I mean, what, what what do you say to the person who's, whose TV still works perfectly well? Why, why can't I have, have my app? I mean, that's, you know, that, that can be a difficult conversation, can't it? Yeah, exactly. And, and I think, too, of a LinkedIn thread that I was on just a couple days ago that also just shows, like, the disparity of thinking, you know, between the broadcast mindset and the streaming mindset. And the conversation that was happening over LinkedIn was Jan Ozer published a uh, study that he did, you know, and he looked at, like, I don't know, YouTube and Facebook Live and Amazon. And he was looking at constrained VBR, which basically is just looking at how many of these services are using a VBR rate control mechanism versus more like a CBR. Well, guess what? No surprise. The broadcast oriented services were all either straight CBR or very, very, very tightly constrained. The OTT services looked more like what you would expect, you know, in some cases, 400% very in bitrate, right? So I commented on this and, you know, and just pointed out like, wow, it's amazing in today's day and age that broadcasters are still streaming effectively CBR. 
And I got a response from someone who's very much in that, in that camp, you know, that, that yes, you know, that's, that's the norm. And, you know, that's kind of what has to be done. And I'm like, and so I wrote back a response and here's what I wrote effectively. I said, so let me get this straight. That same device that you're streaming CBR to because you're concerned about playback compatibility is the same device that is rendering beautifully YouTube videos, Netflix, etc., with VBR. And oh, by the way, why would we be reducing the visual quality and streaming higher bit rates than needed for a subset of devices? You know, the 2007 vintage era Roku box, as an example, when today, like everyone's on a modern device. I mean, you look at the upgrade cycles and the data is all out there. You know, you look at how quickly people are upgrading phones, mobile phones, and even the, t- the TV refresh cycle. And the reason I share this is, is that part of the point that I was trying to bring out in this whole exchange that happened on LinkedIn was that for 80% of the users, I'd even argue it's like 90 or 95% of the users, we're actually giving them a lesser experience because, oh, we have to protect that person who's on that 2010 Roku box. And does that really make sense? You know, and I think it's an important discussion, very important discussion that the industry needs to have. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. We do. And, and I think it will take major broadcasters like maybe the BBC, as an example, to, um, to, to actually sort of say, well, actually, we're not going to support that device anymore. Because I, I, think, I think for the niche guys, when the big broadcasters are still, are still supporting it, they feel like they have to. They feel like they have to, yeah. You know, if, if you're running a niche platform, you, you, you have to be everywhere that Netflix is, if you can. I mean, ultimately, sometimes you can't afford to be. But, it, but ultimately, the economics of this is going to bite at some point, isn't it? And then you've got all of the cybersecurity implications of you know, potentially 15-year-old devices that have never been updated that are sitting on people's you know, home networks. I mean, we've got to address this at some point. Um, and yes, of course, it creates e-waste. And that will, you know, that's obviously the counter argument. If it's a, still a working device, why would we want to throw it away? So we're going to have to do something about that. The other thing that's, that's a bit weird about what you said is, is of course, on DVB, of, of course, when we multiplex different channels together, we are doing VBR all the time. Um, so it's not like it's a whole new idea, right? You know, obviously, one of the things that we haven't really touched on is, is when we talk about trying to do live things in the cloud, which is obviously a, a, a whole new area that everyone's trying to explore. Um, then timing is a is a huge challenge. And of course, VBR makes timing even harder than it already is, which is quite hard. And, uh, you know, the, the, the classic example is always, of course, when you when you're trying to cover a live sporting event, if you want to do remote production on a live sporting event, by which we mean you know, stream several cameras to the cloud and then be have someone sitting somewhere doing production in a, you know, in a web browser, let's say. You know, the timing's obviously important because when you cut between different cameras, you don't want to see the goal being scored twice. You don't want to see the, the driver overtaking his competitor twice or, or even miss it completely because, because of the way you've cut between the cameras. And, and getting the timing right, but also we also don't want latency in live sport, do we? So we've got that challenge to, to tackle as well. When we bring VBR into that, then that's, you know, it's not that we shouldn't, by the way. I'm not but there's another layer of complication that you've no longer got necessarily that assurance. But we've already, I think, recognised in, in cloud workflows that you have to cast off the, the shackles, as it were, of the sort of, you know, lockstep broadcast data centre 
everything runs to a pulse kind of kind of approach to everything you know which obviously we we had for many years with with SDI and and, and now is sort of we've done IP but it's still very much kind of that sort of everything's got to be in in sync kind of mindset but when we get stuff up into the cloud it's actually out of sync and we've got to sync it up again at the end of the process or within the process if we want to do accurate cuts on sporting events yeah we talk about five nines but these are the kinds of production values that I think people do notice a difference of really it's not it's not like coming down from 4k to, to 720p if you see the gold twice then you're going to suck your teeth and say well that's a terrible production yeah well this has been a really interesting conversation i've, I've really enjoyed it so yeah thank you uh for coming on paul and sharing you know all of your experience and and insights um really appreciate it as you promised at the beginning, it's been a lot of fun to have have just a you know a very kind of free form chat about all of this stuff and and um, you know cover some of the topics. One of my uh, colleagues once said, "I hope the pub's open late because we can talk about this stuff for a long time." <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, that's true. Right. That's so yeah, true, we, we really yeah. learned a lot. I mean, you have a great perspective on the broadcast industry and the streaming industry and the software industry and cloud. You know, from your experience in the past 25, 30 years, I'm sure our listeners will enjoy it uh, as well. And if you had found, you know, that's even um, a double bonus. So uh, thank you again for coming on the Video Insiders today. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a great pleasure. Okay. And to all of our listeners, we will uh, wish, as usual, very, very happy encoding. Happy encoding. Bye, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Video Insiders podcast. If you'd like to appear on the show, just send an email to thevideoinsiders at beamer.com. That's B-E-A-M-R.com with a brief description on what you're working on and why you think it's interesting for our audience. This podcast is sponsored by Beamer Imaging. The views expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity that they represent.